0: Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, or Darius if you want to mispronounce it, the son of Azuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, Who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments? We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes. To our fathers and all the people of the land, O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness. Which they have committed against you. In the Bible, there are four great groups that will experience an ultimate destiny in the Bible the Jews and the Gentiles, the church and angels. Daniel is going to focus on two of these groups, the Jew and the Gentile. The river of prophecy is going to flow through the Jewish people until the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah will redeem Jew and Gentile. Later in chapter 9, we're going to see one of the most detailed prophecies, if not the most detailed prophecy in all of the scripture. But before we look at that detailed prophecy, we're invited into Daniel's secret prayer chamber. We're invited to listen to his private talk with God. And we're going to find, as we join Daniel in the prayer closet, things that are astonishing, things that are amazing, things that if we pay careful attention is going to help us in our own prayer closet. We're going to find perhaps one of the greatest examples in all of the scripture of intercessory prayer. And again, what's interesting about this vision of Daniel's intercessory prayer is the context. Remember, the context is prophecy. As we looked at the beginning of the book of Daniel, we looked at Daniel's purity, his revelation, and now his investigation into prophecy. Remember, Daniel's study of prophecy reveals the exile for his people are about to come to an incredible end. Daniel's a high government official. He's arguably the most important Jew in Babylon and perhaps in captivity. He searches the scripture to look for clues as he investigates the plans that God has for his people and the purposes that he has for his people. And as Daniel ponders the prophecies, he begins to pray. Chuck Swindoll wrote, quote, what we will discover is Daniel's unguarded prayer of Confession and petition on behalf of the Jewish people. As we examine his intercessory plea for divine forgiveness and restoration, let's take time to reflect on our own prayer life as well. And that's exactly right. It's not good enough to just simply look at his example. It should prompt each and every one of us to examine our own heart, our own prayers, and our prayer life. What happens when we pray? We affect the outcome of so many things. The moment that we bow our head and our heart, we acknowledge that we can't, and God can. Paul understood the importance of prayer. If ever there was a person who could get the job done through sheer force of will, through raw intellect, through Unbelievable giftedness. It's Paul. But Paul appeals to the early church to pray for him. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19 pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should, unquote. Paul doesn't say, pray that they'll spring me out of jail. Pray that I'll get a pardon from Nero. Pray that I'll be taken off the shelf and put back in the line of duty. That's not what he prays. He says, pray for me that no matter where I am and what I'm doing, I can boldly proclaim the gospel. Now again, part of the point of this passage is the context. Look as Daniel studies prophecy in verse one. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus. Another translation is Xerxes, so this is the Darius, the Achaerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. I want to help you orient yourself in this book and in its chronology. One of the things that's difficult about Daniel is it's not written in chronological order. The first six chapters deal with history. From chapter 6 to chapter 12, it deals with prophecy. And so this Darius, the Mede, is the one who's mentioned in chapter 6. In our study of the book of Daniel, we've already been with Daniel as he makes his way into the lion's den. When this chapter is taking place, Daniel has yet to go to the lion's den. The lion's den is still a part of his future. But Darius the Mede is the same one who's mentioned in chapter 6. Now this is not the Asuerus or the Xerxes who's mentioned in the book of Esther. So that leaves us to believe that Asuerus or Xerxes is probably a title belonging to the king. And so that event is still 50 years in the future. So in order to orient yourself in the chronology of the text, the year is about 539-538 B.C. Daniel has been in captivity for some 67 years. Remember, he was taken as a youth in about 605 B.C. He, along with his friends, are dragged to Babylon. He has been there For some 67 years. What we've already learned about his prayer life is he has a place. He prays three times a day. He prays on a regular basis. At this point in his life, he's a very elderly gentleman. Now remember, he has spent most of his life in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of Babylon has fallen. The events that took place in chapter 5 have already happened. Babylon has fallen. The Medes and the Persians have gained ascendancy. We have every reason to believe that he is still in Babylon when these events are taking place. So in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord... Through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years, plural, in the desolations, plural, of Jerusalem. The desolations seems to indicate not only the time, but the intensity of the judgment. Daniel's study of prophecy is going to yield some important information the captivity of the Jewish people is going to last 70 years that's Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 now as you're looking at this scroll a lot of you should be asking questions of the text wait a minute where did Daniel get the the scroll of Jeremiah where did it come from how is it possible that he even had it now you'll remember that Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. And in, in chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive... To the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. The book of Jeremiah was completed about a generation prior to the events of Daniel chapter 9. So I'm, I'm gonna suggest something to you. Number one, this letter is circulating among the people. Of Babylon, Daniel already considers the writings of Jeremiah to be the scripture, to be the word of the Lord. The books or the scrolls are available to him and they're considered sacred. Now, the reason why this is all very important is because it goes against the much repeated claim that the authority and the canonicity of the scriptures emerge hundreds of years later by various councils that a bunch of old men got together and said, this is in and this is out. Nothing could be further from the truth and nothing could be a greater testimony to the reality of the inspiration and the authority of these documents. And again, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, well, excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, we read, quote, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then again in Daniel, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10, we read, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you to return you to this place. Daniel's been pouring over the passages. He's been reading and praying the scriptures. He's been thinking about the plan of God and the purpose of God. He has gotten up morning after morning, day after day, evening after evening. And even though he lives in Babylon, his heart was always in Jerusalem. Home for him was that place. This was the place of captivity Now, again, I want you to note something else. Daniel believes the prophecy and interprets it literally. He doesn't think of this as 70 mystical cycles. He doesn't think of them as subjective turns of events. He's literally going by the chronology And as he's going by the chronology, he realizes that the time of captivity is fast drawing to a close and that the time of restoration is at hand and that the Lord has promised that he is going to return his people to the land, that he's not only going to return them to the land of Israel and specifically to the city of Jerusalem, that he's going to prosper them, but Jeremiah's letter also contained this severe warning in Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 12 through 13 that the exiles would have to confess their sin, that they would need to seek the Lord their God. So Daniel's study of Jeremiah's prophecy prompts him to examine his own heart, to confess the sins of the nation, to seek the Lord, to plead to the Lord for their restoration to the land. And so in this chapter, Daniel is going to fulfill the role of a prophet. This is the reason why Jesus refers to him as a prophet, because he is going to plead before the people of God. He is going to act as an intercessor for the people. And he's also going to act as an intermediary as God is about to reveal to to him the important issues that are about to unfold. And so in Daniel's prayer, he confesses the people's sin in verses 3 through 11. He confesses Israel's suffering in verses 12 through 14. He pleads for God's forgiveness and their restoration to the land in verses 15 through 19. So let's push a little bit further. In verse 3, Daniel sets his face to pray. Look what it says. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication. That word could also be translated petition or lists. So he's going to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes that expression in the hebrew language set my face literally reads i gave my face what in the world does that mean it speaks of resolve and determination we might even say concentration so when, when Daniel is using this expression, he, he's, he's basically using it in the sense of that he's setting his face towards God. Let me try and explain it. When a person has their face glued to the TV, part of the fun thing I love to do is when I'm watching TV with my wife is just to watch her face as she's looking at the screen, the expressions that she makes, the smiles and the frowns, or if there's some sort of reptilian creature, the horror. And I try to remind her, look, it's just a TV, it's not real. When Daniel is setting his face towards the Lord, it's an idiomatic expression that means I'm going to look to you and I'm going to look for you and I'm gonna look to you and for you until you reveal what it is that I need to have known. It's an idiomatic expression which is a, a, an expression of resolution, of determination, of concentration. I'm not suggesting that this is some sort of new year's resolution that Daniel's now going to promise to go to church every Sunday and and pray on a regular basis. No. He has been studying prophecy. He's been been examining the unfolding plans of God. He is determined to pray until he receives an answer from the Lord. And that should be one of the things that you should think about for yourself. That these aren't just a few words muttered as you get ready to close your eyes and go to sleep. This isn't some sort of Hail Mary, no offense, That takes place out of the clear blue sky where you're going to offer up some sort of prayer in the hopes that God may or may not hear it. And the reason why he is setting his face in a resolved fashion is because the stakes are so high. The captivity of God's people is about to come to a close. And you'll notice the fervency and the frequency and the intensity of your prayers is usually in direct proportion to what it is that you're praying about. If I have a headache, I want my Baptist friends to pray for me. If I have cancer, I want my Pentecostal friends to pray for me. Loud, long, specific prayers urgent prayers. And if someone is sick in your life, or if someone in your life is hurt terribly, it creates a mechanism of resolution. The prophecy of Jeremiah includes the promise to visit his people and perform his good word. And in Jeremiah twenty nine ten to return to this place. And so again, even as he's praying, you should ask the question, what caused the catastrophic judgment on Jerusalem and the captivity of the people of God? How is it possible that there temple got destroyed to begin with? How was it even possible that they were displaced to begin with? And for those of you who are familiar with Jewish history, you'll remember that there is a repeated, repeated, ongoing pattern of rebellion and disobedience by the people of God towards the commandments and the revelation of God. The Lord said, I need you to love me. And then they don't. I need you to obey me. They won't. I need you to honor me. And then they don't. I need you to do what I'm asking you to do. And they don't. He says, look, there are plans and purposes that I have for you. And they ignore them. And then the Bible says that they were supposed to, every seventh year, not to allow the ground to lie fallow, to to make sure that that they took good care of the land, and for 490 years they said, I don't think that that means literally ignore the crops, ignore the land, but God actually literally did mean that. And so the Lord was going to allow that that land to experience its Sabbath for 70 years in a row. And so this becomes part of the point. If I were to sum it up in a single sentence, they find themselves in the position where they are because of disobedience to God. In the most simple terms, Daniel knew that obedience to God brought blessing for his people. Disobedience brought discipline. And if I've learned any lesson from the Old Testament and the repeated failures of the Jewish people, it's that. Rebellion and disobedience brings discipline. And obedience and submission brings blessing. And so it isn't some sort of legalistic thing where I'm up here all the time going, please, please obey the Lord. Please honor him. Please, please, please. Don't lie, cheat, or steal. Please, don't be unfaithful to your wife or husband. Please, stop living the life of a drunk. Please, stop doing this, stop doing that. And some people might think, well, he's so legalistic. I'm trying to, to spare you pain and sorrow and disappointment, disobedience, Brings an invitation to judgment. Obedience brings an opportunity for blessing. The prophecies of Isaiah. The prophecies of Jeremiah. The prophecies of Ezekiel. All pointed to the people returning to the land. Rebuilding the temple. Awaiting God's Messiah. So Daniel's introduction to prophecy, remember his life in order for him to live the kind of life that he has, has already included these issues of purity that we've talked about. But look what's happening in his study of prophecy. It isn't just to satisfy his curiosity about what's going to happen in the future. It prompts spiritual maturity and discipline. For those of you who are prophecy buffs or your self-described prophecy buffs and you love prophecy, well good on you. But if prophecy doesn't change your heart, if it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't purify you, if it doesn't motivate you to pray and then to participate in God's plans and purposes, not only for your life, but for the life of your family, for the life of this church, for the life of the nation, then you're missing in part the point. A study of prophecy that neglects personal purity and spiritual maturity means you're not studying it right. So when Daniel dives deep into prophecy and he discovers God's promises for the return of his people, it prompts him to pray, he makes supplication, In humility, he fasts. He takes off the royal robes of his high government official. He takes off the robes that Belteshazzar has placed on him and the gold chain that he's placed on him. And he takes off and he puts on the apparel of a mourner. And in ancient Middle Eastern customs, and most particularly among the Jewish people, They would clothe themselves with sackcloth and they would put ashes upon their head as a kind of a ritual that identifies themselves with the dead. In other words, if you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever been to a funeral parlor, if you've ever been to a place where death has taken place and you see this casket and you see the person in the casket and you see the flowers and you're looking all around at you and you're going, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think? How am I supposed to identify with those people who are grief stricken, who are suffering such pain and grief and loss? And that's exactly what Daniel is doing. He's identifying himself with all of the people who have lost so much because of rebellion, because of disobedience, because of sin. And so Daniel is going to identify with his people and their sin, and his prayer is going to be first adoration and then confession the prophet desires to see the discipline of the lord for his people to come to an end and this is part of the point for us when when a person's hurt we want the suffering to come to an end. When they have cancer, we want them to be healed. If you have a a son, a daughter, a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend who's struggling with drug addiction, you want it to come to an end. If you've got a loved one in jail, you want the incarceration to come to an end. And so the prayer of Daniel is going to contain five important elements. Number one, concentration. Daniel's going to focus his prayer. He's going to take time. He's going to devote effort. He's going to avoid distraction. He doesn't allow himself to be diverted from his prayer until his prayer goals are reached. And if you really want to pray, if you want to be serious about prayer, then you're going to have to set aside time to pray. You're going to have to say, I want prayer to become a priority in my life. That means making a decision. It makes making a decision about praying. And then supplication. The Hebrew term for supplication means entreatings or pleadings. It conveys the idea of a servant pleading with his king or master to meet his needs. Daniel is in effect asking God to make good his promises. And the point is that God's character and God's mercy and God's compassion and God's love and God's willingness to forgive becomes the basis of answered prayer. In other words, the basis of answered prayer is, hey, I'm making a resolution to do this. I'm making a resolution to ask. I want to be a better person. That isn't the basis a biblical prayer. It's based on who God is, his character, and what he wants. So there's concentration and supplication and then fasting. John C. Whitcomb explains that quote, in the Bible, fasting was never a means to get God's attention or impress him. He cites Isaiah chapter 58 verses three through 12. This is the impression that some people receive from people like Gandhi. There will be no pickle that will pass my lips until my people are at peace. It isn't starving yourself in order to get God's attention, like some people do. Imagine a person's bullied, or imagine a person has some horrible and terrible thing happen to them, and so they hurt themselves in the hopes that they'll get God's attention or the attention of of the people who are around them. That's not the point. You're not hurting yourself or denying yourself in order to get God's attention or to prove that you mean business. Fasting is just simply a willingness to refrain from doing something so that you can do something else. Daniel's not just setting aside a meal or the meal preparation. He's doing this in order to concentrate and devote himself to the issue at hand. Daniel knew that sometimes speaking to God is more important than eating. And for the person who says, there's nothing more important to me than eating, we laugh but again it's a revelation a priority and so there's supplication fasting and humility and like I said sackcloth and ashes both in the old and the new testament is an outward sign of an inward humility a humbling of the soul this is an expression of deep sorrow for sin And then there's honesty. Daniel doesn't try to hide anything from the Lord. Daniel's desire is to reveal everything. And we know in moments of clarity and honesty that God already knows. He knows the truth. But some of you have used that as an excuse. Well, if God knows everything, why do I have to talk about this? Well, let me ask you something. If you already know everything about your husband or your husband knows everything about you, why why should he have to talk to you and why should you have to talk to him? I'm hoping you're saying because people who care about each other, talk to each other and people who care about each other, talk to each other. And Daniel remarkably confesses his sin and the sin of his people. What's most remarkable about that is there's nothing in the text. There's no glaring failure. There's no glaring personality disorder. There's no glaring character disorder. As a matter of fact, Joseph in the Old Testament and Daniel in the Old Testament are the only two characters in the Old Testament where nothing negative is said about either one of them. But he is still going to identify with his people and with their sin in adoration and confession. Look what it says in verse 4 And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, each and every phrase comes right out of the Old Testament. It's so clear that Daniel has soaked his mind and his heart in the petitions and the revelation that has already been given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what are the elements that can be found in his prayer? prayer? Adoration, worship. Confession and petition. The elements of Daniel's prayer include a personal relationship with God. And I prayed to the Lord my God. This is reminiscent of what Jesus taught his own disciples, remember? They said, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven... Prayer begins because you have a relationship with God. He is your father. He prays to the Lord, my God. He doesn't just simply say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Judah, my father. He says, He's my God. He prays. It begins with adoration. Oh, Lord, great and awesome God, acknowledgement who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him, submission and with those who keep His commandments. It isn't just simply that you promised this, but it's also for those who have promised to submit to you. So in what ways are God great and awesome? Think about how Daniel has already been given supernatural revelation in dealing with, with King Nebuchadnezzar's dangerous dream in chapter 2. He's basically saying, oh Lord, great and awesome God. This is the awesome God. God who reveals the dream in chapter two, which creates the mechanism whereby Daniel and all of his friends are delivered. God's deliverance of his friends from the fiery furnace in chapter three. Later on, it's going to be representative of Daniel's deliverance himself from the lion's den. This is the God who keeps covenant and mercy. In what sense? He makes promises and he keeps promises. And mercy. Why? Because we don't. And so it isn't just about His faithfulness, it's also about His mercy. The Lord looks for ways, think about this, to preserve and to bless and to restore His children. And so if you're wondering, yes, God is looking for ways to preserve you, to bless you, to restore you. He's not looking for reasons to count you out or to exclude you. Daniel doesn't compartmentalize God's faithfulness and love. Again, also as somehow disconnected from how his people respond. You're the God who keeps covenants, but you're also the God who cares whether or not we love you. Whether or not we submit to you. Whether or not we obey you. Pause. Because sometimes we lose our way. And we forget that obedience is one of the best ways that you can show God that you love him. Have you ever loved someone? And they said to you, I love you. And you said, could you please show me that by what you actually do? And so it shouldn't come as a shock and as a surprise to you that obedience and submission becomes a manifestation. It's an expression of love. In Exodus chapter 20, verses five and six, God said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy 7:9, God affirms, quote, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations? Nehemiah referred to God as, quote, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Nehemiah 1.5. Jesus said, John 14.15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So Daniel's prayer begins with an outpouring of adoration and worship, and then continues with confession. Look what it says in verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. The prayer of Daniel, in one sense, is a prayer of restoration for a people who have lost their way. How have they lost their way? They have sinned. We have sinned. That word means missing the mark. It means falling short. It means incomplete. And look what it says. And committed iniquity. It isn't just simply falling short. It's also a failure. Not just simply to not do what you're not supposed to do, but to do what you're supposed to do. He says, we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Now think about this. What he is doing is Daniel is identifying that with the revelation of what God desires and what God wants and what God requires, is obedience, not what we pretend to know or want to know that God has actually spoken on the vast majority of subjects when we're asking and answering the question, what is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is evil? And so it begins with adoration. And then it continues with confession. This provides a solution for so many people. What do you do if you have lost your way? What happens if you've stumbled along the way? Confess your sin. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word in the New Testament, confess, hama Lageo, means to say the same thing. So confess in the New Testament sense means I am going to talk about this the way God has talked about it in his word, and I am going to agree with God about my moral condition, my personal condition. And so, this is what's interesting. For Daniel, confession doesn't simply mean coming clean. It isn't just say, hey, look, just come clean. It means agreeing with God about the nature of sin, the character of sin, and the condition that sin has brought to my life. And this is exactly what Daniel does. Daniel identifies with his people. We have sinned and committed iniquity, he says at the beginning of verse five. Maybe one of the best definitions of sin is simple disobeying God. God wanted me to do this, and I did something that God didn't want me to do. Adam listened to his wife and disobeyed God, Genesis 3.17. By the way, gentlemen, don't use that as a proof text to never listen to your wife. You have to think of it in its context. That doesn't mean everything that your wife ever says might risk, you might risk disobeying God. You have to think about it in its context. In Leviticus chapter four, verses one and two, the Lord gave instructions to Moses, quote, tell the people of Israel that these are the laws Concerning anyone who unintentionally breaks any of my commandments. So in in Leviticus chapter 4, he goes, well, how am I supposed to know? And what if I make a mistake? And what if I had no idea that I was making a mistake? Here's the instructions. And so the Lord reveals these sins to teach and to guide his people. Now, I want you to think about this. The revelation of the law isn't to just simply point out to you how, that you've done it all wrong, it's to point out to you how you can do it right and how you can experience forgiveness and how you can experience mercy. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We're gonna have communion at the end of this, of, of, of our time here together, But you don't have to wait till communion. You could do it right now. You can sort of get a head start on communion right at this very moment. And say, Lord, silently pray to yourself. Lord, is there something in my life? Is there something in my heart? Is there something wrong with me that you want to bring to my attention? In Deuteronomy 4.31, it says, quote, the Lord your God is a merciful God. And Jeremiah's exclamation of hope in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Do you know what the context of him writing those words? Jerusalem is a trash heap. There are burnt bodies all around him. The aroma of death is everywhere. The desolations have been made complete. And that's when he writes the book of Lamentations. It's when it looks like all hope is gone and all, the judgment has come. And he's fulling the, feeling the full effects of the fierce discipline of God and David's catastrophic failure and and sin, David prays, not before he commits wickedness, but afterwards, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgressions. In case you were wondering, in, in case you were wondering, God wants to forgive you he 's not looking for a reason to to keep you in your sin. Daniel confesses the miserable history of his people in refusing to heed the prophets in, in refusing to heed the warnings of judgment neither have We heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. This is a reiteration that takes place by Jesus in the New Testament when he's talking to the religious leaders. And he said, to which one of the prophets did you listen to you? Which one didn't you punish? Which one didn't you persecute? Stephen says exactly the same thing to the religious leaders and they pick up rocks and they stone him. In verse 7, it says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and those countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. With the diaspora, with the captivity in 605, and then the subsequent destruction of the temple in 586 BC, the Jewish people hundreds of thousands of them are killed. Hundreds of thousands of them are are enslaved. Hundreds of thousands leave and run for their lives and go to Egypt and Alexandria. They find enclaves throughout Syria as they try to hold on and figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. But what's interesting to me is what Daniel says. Look what it says. Oh Lord, Righteousness belongs to you. You should underline that. What does it mean? Our failures in no way diminishes the righteousness of God. He remains righteous. He remains holy. He remains merciful. He remains steadfast in his love. Nothing that you have done or could do has in any way diminished God, period. Sin doesn't diminish God. It diminishes us. The Bible has a lot to say about guilt and its near relative shame. Daniel says, but to us, shame of face, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah. Do you understand what he's saying? When you meet Jewish people in Alexandria in the 6th century BC, what are you doing here? It's because of rebellion and disobedience, God brought judgment. Isaiah warned that judgment was gonna come. Jeremiah said that judgment was going to come over and over and over again. God pleaded with us over and over and over again, not for just a dozen years, not even for decades, but year after year, month after month, decade after decade, please, please, this doesn't have to go bad, please turn from your sin. Please embrace the Lord. Please do what God would have you to do. But we live in a culture and a society that has distanced itself from the concept of shame. We live in a culture and a society that says there's no such thing as shame. John Wesley said, quote, be ashamed of nothing but sin not of fetching wood or drawing water, if time permit, not of cleaning your own shoes or your neighbors. There's nothing to be ashamed about being poor or about being hurt. There's nothing to be ashamed of if you've obeyed God and you've submitted to God. Over a century ago, Even the unbeliever Mark Twain wrote, quote, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. Even then, he thought that there probably was an appropriate place for shame, even in his unbelieving world. But our world has pushed shame away and won't allow it its appropriate due Daniel prays, and again, I want you to think about what you've just read. It begins with adoration. It continues with confession. And then petition takes place. I think that this gives us a clue about perhaps what we ourselves can do. Before you jump right in and say, God, I want you to do this, and God, I want you to do that, maybe it's time to say, Lord, I want to learn the lessons that have been given both in Matthew chapter 6 and 7 and and in Daniel chapter 9. Maybe it's a good idea for us to begin our conversation reminding you, Lord, who you are and what you've done in my life. It's okay. Talk to him. Tell him what you admire about him. The prophet realizes, God knows, Daniel knows that God is faithful and righteous in his dealing with his people. Verse 4, later in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 16, over and over again, he, the, the, throughout this conversation that Daniel has, he go, he, he's going to say, you're faithful and righteous, you're faithful and righteous, you're faithful and righteous. Instead of dwelling on how unfaithful and unrighteous you are, Don't begin the conversation there. But you're going to get to that part of the conversation. Daniel acknowledges that God is compassionate and forgiving. And you know what else he does? He says, you won't permit your people to be afflicted forever. Remember, this is what prophecy has done. Prophecy isn't just about, What's going to happen in the future? It's the future that's going to happen. They're going to go back to the land. They're going to be restored in the land. A temple is going to be built. Are they going to still have problems? Yes, but there's one problem that this grinding Babylonian captivity will literally grind out of their soul. The issue of idolatry will be gone forever for the Jewish people. They're not going to play games anymore with this problem of idolatry. And so, I'm hoping, as we continue our study in the book of Daniel and in prayer, that you're beginning to connect the dots. Prophecy cannot be studied and leave personal purity behind. Prophecy Properly studied is going to generate spiritual disciplines in the life of the believer. If this doesn't do anything other than motivate you to pray, then again, you're not doing it right. And by the way, once you're motivated to pray and you begin to adore the Lord, you begin to speak of His glorious greatness. His Majesty, all of a sudden, as you see the Lord as He actually is revealed in the Bible, you begin to see yourself as the Bible reveals who you are. Just like the song says, the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, and you'll see the dark spots. And they will become so evident that you'll go, Lord, this is something dishonoring and displeasing in your life. I don't want it to be a part of my life. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have Carolyn and the team come back up. But let's pray right now as we get ready to have communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, in the spirit of what Daniel has taught us, Lord, we begin... Our conversation, once again magnifying you, glorifying you. You are the Lord, the Lord on high, magnificent in glory, generous in love, merciful, forgiving. You're the Lord who reveals himself in the scripture. You're the Lord who sent his son. You're the Lord who tells us that he loves us and cares for us, that he's looking for reasons not to hurt us, but to help us. And so, Lord, we pray that you will touch on those areas of our life, that you would reveal to us those areas where we've fallen short, That, Lord, you will remind us that in grace and in mercy that the New Testament remains true when John wrote, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we pray, based on the mercy that you've revealed in the person of Jesus, the sacrifice of your wonderful Son, That, Lord, all of the benefits that we can receive as we submit to you and trust you, including cleansing. Lord, including the power to live our lives in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, even as we worship right now and we get ready to take communion, Lord, we pray that we will once again give you thanks and praise for the sacrifice that you've provided for us and that you would reveal to us our sin and that, Lord, we could experience cleansing in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen.